Welcome to the Money Insights Podcast, where high income earners come to learn wealth building strategies that will take them from high income to high net worth. With your hosts, financial and wealth building experts, Christian Allen and Rod Zabriskie. Welcome into another episode of the Money Insights Podcast, the alternative wealth building podcast for high income earners. My name's Christian Allen. With me, as always, Rod the Pod Zabriskie. Rod, what's up, man? Hey, I'm doing great. And we have an additional co-host, Blake Never Takes a Break Brogan. Blake, I came up with that last night and I was like, I don't have anything better. So that's what we're rolling with. I was excited. I thought it was better than Snake. (laughs) No, I like it. I will say I've had a little bit of break from the podcast. It's been a couple months since I've been on. So (laughs) I am excited to be back on now. Yeah, that's true. Well, we're excited to have you back and it's a good time to have you back because Blake, we're going to talk about a topic that you have quite a bit of experience with. Rod has quite a bit of experience with. And so do I. So we're going to talk about all things life insurance. And the impetus, what's the right word? The uh, catalyst. The the reason, the catalyst. Thank you. The catalyst for the pod was I was getting pitched a podcast guest, Garrett Gunderson. I went out and I checked out some, I already knew him, by the way. We'd met a few times, but I checked out some of his YouTube stuff and they were having, he was having some conversations around life insurance that I just thought, man, we've got to get in on this conversation. If we haven't already been in on it, we're going to continue to get in on it. Okay. So that being the case, my goal here is to have a whatever direction conversation. We're going to go as deep as we want to go on life insurance. And this is going to be kind of funny. It's going to be kind of an interesting conversation because inside the industry or really inside this conversation about life insurance, there's like really, really strong opinions. Like, borderline like religious belief opinions that are happening here, right? And so we get the chance to kind of pull the curtains back. We're going to tell you exactly what our opinions are on those things. We're going to back those up with ideas, facts, philosophies, and then you can kind of compare and contrast with what other people are saying. Okay, um, here's the first thing I noticed before we jump into the conversation. Almost everybody is dealing in extremes, right? So you're either a term person or you're a permanent life insurance person. You're either an IUL person or you're a whole life person. You're a VUL person or you're a IUL or VUL or or whole life person. But you're just usually not all of those things, right? Absolutely true. Okay. Okay. With that being the case, let's jump into it. So the first thing I want to talk about is the conversation about term and whole life. And I know this seems like a ridiculous conversation that we've had for like years and years, but there has to be, my, my logic here is there has to be a reason that smart, logical people believe in both sides of this, of this debate. So Rod, I'm going to kick us off, talk a little bit about what the debate is, the term versus perm debate, kind of set the stage for us. And then Maybe maybe just define what they are. Too. Okay, just do that really quick. Yeah, let's let's start with that definition. So, term insurance is pretty basic. If you want to have life insurance, in other words, if you pass away in with an untimely death and you want your family to get money, get the life insurance payout, and you have term insurance, you're paying a premium. And if you die, 
your family gets the death benefit. And you can, there are different times of, of, you know, term you can get 10 year, 15, 20, 30. There's even what's called annual renewable term where year by year you decide if you want to keep paying the increasing premium. Uh, but in, in any case, these are very purely insurance based uh, policies, probably more like the way we think about insurance in terms of, you know, auto insurance or medical insurance, right? You have it up for the just in case. And if and when that happens, the benefit pays out. But if not, if I don't die in the 10 or 30, 20 years or whatever of my term insurance, which, which is I'm hoping happens, right? I'm hoping I don't die. It's Again, it's the what if. That's true. But if I don't die, then I've just spent that money and it's gone and, and I paid the premium and I didn't die, right? No, no death benefit was paid out. That's term. Okay. Okay. We get term there. insurance. Very simple. Yep. I think we're good. Okay. On the permanent insurance side, basically what happened is because cost of insurance goes up as I get older. And if I'm someone who wants to have insurance later in life, then permanent insurance is the right way to go. And, and basically what, what the insurance companies have done here is they've set it up so that the premiums that I'm paying for my insurance while I'm younger is higher than it has to be or higher than it should be or would be if I was paying for term because what they're doing is building a cash value inside of the plan. What that cash value does is it allows me to offset the higher costs later so that I don't have to come out of pocket with this ever increasing amount of premium if I want to keep the insurance as I get older because there's this underlying cash value that's there. Uh, it, it's growing along the way so that when I get to those older ages, I can keep paying the same amount of money as I have been paying. And then this extra value that's in my, in my policy offsets those additional costs. So I can keep the policy again, it's called permanent, right? It, it needs to last as long as I live, regardless of how long that is. Okay. So term insurance, permanent insurance, permanent insurance comes in different shapes and sizes. I've already alluded to that whole life. Index universal yeah. life, variable universal life, and good old fashioned regular old universal life, yeah. which is is like so obsolete now that it doesn't even get to be part of the debate. <laughs> that's the only so, mention you'll I, I hear don't know. <laughs> yeah, that's about it. Uh, uh, when somebody does like the guaranteed UL, where they're trying to get as much insurance yeah. for as little cost as possible, that's usually where it shows up. But mm -hmm. in terms of this conversation. I do think there is, I do think there's something that we can learn from that, from universal life though. And we'll get back mm -hmm. to that. Okay. So here's the deal. We all know Dave Ramsey, people like Dave Ramsey and not just Dave Ramsey, other smart people, right? We were just sitting, uh, we just went to a conference a couple months back. The we We're sat by the white coat investor. Yep. He's very much a proponent of the buy term, invest the difference, like, value proposition. So I guess where I want to start with this is one, Blake, what's kind of the opinion, what's your opinion on the debate in and of itself? And then I want to talk about whether permanent insurance is an investment or not, because that's the next debate. So it's by term invest the difference. We know what Dave Ramsey and other bright people are saying. The question I think Blake is why are they saying it? Well, Personally, I feel like I'm not great at social media because I kind of am in both camps. You know, I don't have the clickbaity title of it's only term or it's only whole life. The reason that they would say term 
And I will say, as you look at numbers of how much term insurance costs, kind of as Rod mentioned, where the costs are much lower on, say, someone who's my age, it can make sense. If we're only looking at the protection that we're getting from this, in your 30s, 40s, and even maybe low 50s, term insurance can be a very cheap way to get the insurance in case something were to happen. Where whole life it has, or any of the permanent products really, they have multiple uses. As Rod mentioned, it has cash value. It has other living benefits that, that you can tap into for various reasons. Now, typically, when we're setting up whole life policies, or I'll, I'll just speak personally, the whole life policies that I own for myself, a lot of times we're structuring them as a cash value accumulation type of focus. So I'm not going into it and saying, okay, I want to put in X thousands of dollars a year into this to get this death benefit. What I want to do is accumulate cash in these policies. Therefore, when we're structuring it, we want to get the least amount of death benefit possible. So the policies that I own personally, we're looking for high cash, low death benefit. So we can go into reasons why we would want the cash value accumulation. But from a death benefit standpoint, because we're overfunding and trying to get the least amount of insurance, if I were to pass away, I've got a couple young kids, right? My, my wife who I would want to take care of, my permanent insurance doesn't necessarily cover all of what I would want. So as I still build up more policies and my death benefit continues to grow, I own these both high cash value whole life policies, as well as I have some term insurance as well to cover, you know, for the next 20 years or so, as I continue to build my wealth, make sure no matter what happens, my family's going to be Whoa. covered. This flies in the face of everything that I've been hearing. I can't believe what I'm hearing. What you're telling me is that you have both term insurance and permanent insurance? I thought you had to choose. It's a crazy concept. I don't know how you sleep it. I don't know how you sleep at night. (laughs) No, as I was watching some of these other videos, they would suggest that, well, term insurance is always more expensive than term insurance because because term insurance pays out at such a low clip, right? 1.2% of all term insurance ever pays out. Therefore, term insurance is ridiculous in every way, shape, and form, right? That's that's at least the argument. And then and then there's that next level where it's like cost versus value, right? Well, is is all cost a bad cost or is some cost worth taking on for other reasons? Maybe it's for, you know, sustainability of my financial life, those kinds of things. So, so anyway, Rod, speak to that side of it. Yeah, well, this is this is I think one of the kind of talking points that that we've heard is: Do you want to rent your insurance or do you want to buy it? If you're it's term insurance, oh yeah, it's the same classic. as renting. You have an apartment, you you live there, right? It's it's serving the purpose, but you're not really building any equity. Whereas if you have a permanent insurance policy with this underlying cash value, it's like buying a home. You're you're still paying for it, but you're building equity inside of it. And in the long run, if you're renting, it's a sunk cost. You'd never get that back. Whereas in, in the buying uh, yes. analogy, you're, uh, you're building this cash value in the policy and it's growing. So in the long run, you end up with a lot more value that you have access to and can bring back out than what you've put into it. Meaning it, it's a, well, I'm not going to say no cost, right? That, that would be uh, mis, maybe misleading people, but, but you come out net ahead because you have more cash value than what you've put in. Yeah. Okay. So pretty simple, pretty straightforward. Um, so why would you, so, okay, let's go to Dave Ramsey for a second. Why is Dave Ramsey telling people as just like a blanket statement, this is the only way to do it. If you, in fact, 
he'll go as far as saying buying anything, whether it's IUL or whole life is a scam. I can find mm-hmm. a video that says this is a scam. So bright guy like Dave Ramsey, he's uh, worth a hundred million bucks or more. Why does that guy teach these teach people that term insurance is the only way to go? You just made you just made the argument, at least to to a small degree, right? We're we're actually suggesting that term insurance is a valuable thing yeah. and really useful. We've got Dave Ramsey suggesting that it's the only thing that's useful. Let's move to that side of the coin. I think there's a couple ideas or, or things that go through my mind when I hear him say things like that. First off, you got to think about who is his audience, right? He's built his hundreds of millions of dollars. And, and his businesses basically helping broke people get out of debt. Like everything you talk, you hear him talking about is reduce your spending, make more money so that you can live a debt-free life. And I think probably for a, a large percentage of America, that's the message that they need to hear, right? And so going back to what I was saying about quote unquote hmm. costs of insurance, if you're gonna only, if you're gonna try to cut costs, if that's your goal as much as possible, for the dollars that you're putting into a term insurance policy, you're going to buy many multiples of what you're going to get in terms of a death benefit versus what you put into whole life, right? So that's kind of his primary focus. Where I think he maybe misses the boat a little bit is is that he's only looking at the insurance portion. So he's not looking at it as a wealth building tool. So he's just saying, if you put your money here or here, what what's going to, you know, where are you going to come out ahead and he's also only doing that analysis over, you know, a 20, 30, 40 year period before people actually are in retirement and go to pass away. He talks about this idea of being self-insured, where really self-insured means that you don't have any insurance, right? You either have insurance or you don't have insurance. In reality, you know, permanent life insurance in various forms, we can get into more of this, can play a big role. Oh, you know, we post, will, Blake. We will. Okay. Post 55 years old, there might be a reason or two you would want to have a different type of insurance as opposed to a, a term insurance policy that's expiring. Yeah. There's no question. He does not value insurance once you get past that point, because if you plug into his system and you do everything he tells you to do, you're going to build, you're going to have enough assets by the time you get to Again, depending on the age, 55, 60, 65, your retirement years, that you do not need life insurance. It is an unnecessary uh, thing in your life. You just will not need it, period. Yeah, obviously, because you're, it, this, is, this is easy. All you need to do is get a consistent 10 to 12% return in your mutual funds year in and year out for 30 to 35 years, saving your IRAs and 401ks, and, and then you can throw out that 30-year term insurance policy that you've been trashing your money on all these years, and now you're set to live your live the 4% rule and fly off into retirement comfortably. That's basically the plan, right? Yep. What's really amazing, though, to me is that Dave Ramsey hasn't changed the plan in 30 years. Like, yeah. He doesn't care. He just like, he's like, this has made me a lot of money. I'm doubling down, man. I am doubling down. Um, and so today... We're still getting like this mess about 4% rule and buy turn. Okay. So, but it it gets even worse than that as it relates to Dave specifically, because if you go on his website and you look and see, Hey, how's the retirement Mm -hmm. plan going to work? Guess what percentage he tells you, you can safely take. I saw this earlier. It's like like eight, right? It's eight. 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 And he's like, Hey, 
We're, yeah, he plays out sending this, people into poverty. Yeah, he plays out this scenario. He's like, well, if you're earning eight percent in your return in yeah. return in your investments, then you can live off uh, of that. It's just you're just you, your your asset stays the same. You're just living off of the proceeds because you're getting eight percent every year. This is basically <laughs> how it goes. So it's yeah, and that is just like so overly simplified yeah. that it's like kind of scary because we deal in we deal in real people's money, right? So we have to actually <laughs> see the result of somebody saying, you know what, I'm going to take on the risk of taking an eight percent withdrawal. Which, by the way, he's like the only one doing I that. Agree. Like even I, inside the industry, yeah, yeah. people aren't saying that. Like we've talked about how terrible the four percent rule is. The 8% rule is just like a kiss of death. Yeah. Right? Yep. Okay. Okay. But but Dave's not the only guy that's saying that, right? Yep. Like there's a lot of people saying it. But the the argument essentially comes back to I could make I could save money, right? I save money on the permanent insurance I would have bought. Let's play this out. Instead of buying my I'm just kind of saying the average person instead of the makes a hundred thousand dollars a year instead of paying $300 a, uh, a month for my whole life policy. I pay $50 for my term policy. I take the other 250 bucks. I invested in mutual funds. And by doing that, I'm going to come out ahead. So, and, and so we've talked a little bit about what they're, but, but maybe I want to pivot to our position, right? So our position is actually very simple. And it's that we like and use both for where they're useful. Pretty simple. Term insurance has a place. It creates significant value. We can go through numerous places. My dad was 49 years old. He passed away of pancreatic cancer. He did not have, he was a buy-term invest-a-difference guy. And guess what? He had term insurance and it did pay out. I don't care what type of, my mom didn't care what type of insurance he had. At the end of the day, he had insurance and that was the, the critical important part, right? Um, For what what he and what my family needed at that time. Um, So term insurance has has a role. And again, like there's there's business strategies that make sense to use term insurance for and temporary needs that make sense to to use it for that uh, just, you know, maybe we have a significant um, liability that we want to cover for a short period of time that's potentially going to go away. Lots of reasons. Okay. However, however, we equally, at least equally, maybe more so, right? We love permanent insurance in various in its various forms. We'll talk a little bit about that. But Rod, what's different about our view from what we see just out there? Like, because we talked to be right. We gave examples of Dave. We gave examples yeah. of even Garrett. Like, what's different about our position from you know what we typically see from people? Because by the way, we are in a very unique and minority position. Yeah, I totally agree. And I feel like that guy, okay, Blake, I'm going to ask you a question this. Okay. And, and it'll come back around. So Blake, when you go to a Michigan, Michigan state game, are there people who wear both colors? They, they, they straddle the line and Very they say, few. okay, the fact it's that just they to exist, people that actually don't care though, the fact that just they to exist, appease their wife who went to the mind. other school. That's it. That's it. Yeah. Okay. So it's the same thing happens with BYU in Utah. There are the, there's this hat that exists on the left-hand side. It's the BYU logo, but the U morphs into the University of Utah U. It's the most disgusting thing I've ever seen. Oh, and, yeah. But here's, okay, so here's what happens. That person is hated by everybody in that stadium. Yeah. 
right? <laughs> You're right. And they I feel have like, no friends. yeah, I feel like that's where we that's are, great. right? Because we, we <laughs> we're great. great with term, right? Let, let's use it for the purpose that it serves. And then when it comes to the permanent insurance side, if it, there just seems to be this, this rule out there, if you like whole life, you have to hate IUL. And vice versa. If you like IUL, you have to hate whole life. Whoa, we, whoa, whoa, Rod. You're getting way ahead crazy. of us. On, on the hat, we're going to have term <laughs> and whole life, but we haven't even gotten crazy yeah. yet. There is a third, oh, third or fourth, maybe fifth category. <laughs> and guess what? We're like totally willing to put every one of them on our hat. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to make us a hat that's going to support term, whole life, IUL. And I'll even go with UL in the right spots. Okay. Yeah. So That's what it. do you think? Okay. But you're right, Rod, because that, and Blake, I'm, I'm excited that you joined up with us. I mean, it's been a few years now, but um, we needed more advocates for just good logic. <laughs> Can I just like, that's the thing that's so ridiculous. There's such hostility like it, it really is a lot like the fandom, right? Mm-hmm. We go back to our mm-hmm. Michigan, Michigan State. Uh, I should really, we're only using Michigan. Everyone out there is saying like it's Michigan and Ohio State, right? <laughs> but so, but for, for Blake's sake, we're going to use Michigan State. Uh, but so Michigan, Michigan State, like I think the question is why is the vitriol the way it is? And why is there not room for more of both? Why? Well, it's because like the beliefs are so deep, right? Yep. Okay. Well, here's the deal. We believe that most financial vehicles just have a place that generally created for some sort of value, right? Now, if you're saying, hey, Christian, I want you to use um, whole life insurance to protect my um, automobile, then I'm obviously going to say, well, that's ridiculous, right? Mm -hmm. But the chances are, at least from my experience, that most of the things that are built have a value proposition if you put them in the right place. So I think our strategy, our goal, our mission, philosophy is to make sure that we line the right financial tool, the right financial vehicle to the right person at the right time so that they can create exponential wealth. Is that a fair way of saying it? Absolutely. Yeah. And I'll, I have a, a couple thoughts as it relates to it, because you're just saying why, like, why does that have to exist? And the answer is, uh, if, you're, if you're Catholic, if you're raised Catholic, you can't accept Protestantism, right? Or vice versa. If you were raised <laughs> yep. Protestant, you can't accept Catholicism. It, it, apparently, it just exists. So, there are there are It's people, human nature. Yeah, there are people who get into this industry and they're raised whole life. Right. They're trained, they're taught. But and the thing is, is they're not only taught the value of whole life, they're taught all of the vices of IUL. And then the other side is yep. true as well. If you're raised IUL, you're not just taught the value and the, and the reasons why IUL has a place. You're taught the horrible things that are happening if you put anybody into a whole life policy. And so you just would never dream of doing it. It's conf- yeah, so it's confirmation bias, right? Yep. Until somebody takes a step back and then challenges it. Well, here's what I see happening most often. This is what happens. Agents especially. You talked about agents growing up inside of a system. Mm-hmm. What I'm seeing as I'm watching a lot of these videos out there is that they have like they have this come to Jesus moment where they're like, wait a minute, maybe what I've grown up with 
wasn't all it was cracked up to be. Therefore, they're jumping the boat and going the other direction. And they're just as like the vitriol mm-hmm. is just as intense going the other way at that point. And they're like, well, why wasn't I told this or this or this? And then they're doing the exact same thing the other direction. Yep. So here's what we're going to advocate for. We're going to advocate for taking a calm step back. I know calm coming from me doesn't sound like doesn't, it doesn't sound like those two should come together, but we're going to take a calm step back and we're going to determine what are the pros, cons, and maybe those things that are neither pros and cons of all of the above. Okay, so term, have we covered the term versus permanent debate enough or do, is there more on that that we need to hit on? I think it's I think it's of of all the things we're going to talk about. I think that one is a little more straightforward. Like either you're taking that money and putting it toward where you feel like you're actually going to build the wealth that's going to take you to the promised land, and you're wasting it and putting it in the whole life policy. Okay, and and we would suggest that the first thing that you said was ridiculous, Uh right? Buy term invest the difference as a end all be all strategy is ridiculous. It's a bad idea. We would also suggest that the idea that uh, going all in on whole life insurance and expecting that you're going to create the life that you want by just paying premiums, probably not going to do it either. Agreed. Right? Yep. Okay. Both have their place. Okay. Let's now move to a little bit. This is, gets a little bit more in depth. So we're going to have to see where this takes us, but we're going to talk IUL versus whole life. Because what's really been interesting to me is that the debate rages across like everybody, but it really is intense inside our own industry, right? So like you said, you've got these people who are all in on index universal life. You've got the people who are, who are like, you know what? Whole life is the original life insurance and we should not deviate from that, right? Yep. Well, the question is who's right? One of them has to be. Or is one of them has to be right. Okay. So, uh, Blake, you're going to take whole life. Just kind of unpack what whole life is, how it works as a overview. Rod, you're going to take IUL, okay. unpack it, get an idea of how what it is, baseline. And then we'll, we'll I, I think we're going to take one at a time and we're going to really like lock in on what's the good about it and what's the bad that people are pointing out about it. Okay. So that's the other thing I want to be really transparent here, right? Like just because we like, like we believe that all of these have a place and can be really valuable and effective doesn't mean that there's no negatives to, to them. Sure. Right. That That's the thing. Each of these has pros and cons. And so I want to be really fair about talking about both what's good about the, the, the product and and really the reason why there's so much, you know, maybe frustration or why there's reason to criticize the products too. Okay. okay I'll start, Blake, I'll start with take yeah, whole life. With, okay. With whole life, let's just talk about standard whole life. I'll go through this quickly and then we'll move on to, you know, some of the pros and cons. Standard whole life is your, you, you would sit down with an agent. If you said, Hey, I want to, I want a million dollars of whole life insurance. They're going to come back with, some premium amount that you would need to pay every single year that that million dollars is going to be enforced for basically your quote unquote whole life, right? And there can be some benefit to that. However, one of the drawbacks is one, the premiums are much higher as Dave Ramsey tends to point out very quickly. 
The other thing is that it's not going to build cash value. So Rod, you talked about cash value a little bit. It has some of these benefits. It will build cash value. All whole life will build cash value, but a lot of it doesn't build it for standard whole life. You know, you're not going to have anything substantial in there for, for many years. So this is where Dave Ramsey or people who say, don't ever touch whole life insurance are going to say, hey, your rate of return is like two, 3% in there. And you'd be way better off buying term and going to buy my magical mutual funds paying 12% every year and they never go down. That would be cool. Now, we would also say that that's probably not an efficient strategy. And that's where you got to get a little more nuance because there's a ways to design whole life insurance policies in you know various manners. Some can be more beneficial than others, depending on what you're trying to accomplish. So let's talk about the other end of the spectrum. When we're designing whole life policies, we don't have an end goal of just putting our money into this plan and letting it sit there till we're 65, 75, or never touching the money in order to wait for a death benefit payout. What we're looking to do is put our money into this plan, this strategy I'm going to talk about, we call the investment optimizer, and utilize the, the funds in the, ca- in the cash value of the policy as your opportunity fund to go out and build other uh, investment income streams, passive income streams through business or real estate, whatever you invest in that's designed to create cash flow, we're going to use the cash value in here to go out and invest in those things as opposed to a bank account. So when we're designing these whole life policies, we're saying not how much death benefit we want. We're saying what's, what's your age? How much do you want to put in here to then go out and use for investments? Let's just say, oh, you want to invest $100,000 a year. You're 40 years old. We're just going to run it to then say, what's the least amount of death benefit? Again, the least amount of death benefit we can have on this plan without triggering any tax, negative tax implications. So there's a lot of tax benefits that come from putting your money into whole life insurance. We want to keep those on the policy and get the least amount of cost possible. So we put the we put those those policies in force and those are going to have significant cash value literally as soon as 30 days later that you can then go tap for other type of investments. So I think a, you got to start with what, what are, you know, Christian, you were just saying this, what are we trying to accomplish? There's reasons for all sorts of financial tools. Not all are good, not all are bad. What is your objective? What are you looking to do? The reason that I love these high cash value life insurance, both for myself personally and the people that we work with is because we're then going to use those dollars to go invest, create additional streams of cash flow and have our money, I won't get into the details, but growing for us more efficiently by getting it into the policy before we go out into the investment. So again, I think with the whole life and really all, all the financial tools, what are we trying to do? What's our objective and what tool is going to help us facilitate or, or solve that problem the, the best? Okay, so let's unpack a couple of things you said there, Blake. One of the things that you said um, that stuck out to me and I think is a huge challenge, like a huge problem for the industry as a whole, and that is that life insurance, cash value life insurance is dramatically different than any other type of insurance that exists, right? And specifically, you said something that if you're listening and you're not in the life insurance industry, you'd be like, what? We said, he said, you can design the policies differently depending on what you want. Okay, so, and this is really where life insurance has, in my opinion, put themselves in a difficult position, right? Just because it's so unique, it's so different. Now, I guess you could say that 
because it's unique and different, it's created some extra value and created like a nice niche position, but it's also a huge amount of confusion. Um, Rod, take a second, talk a little bit about, well, one, your just your thoughts around this idea, the fact that life insurance companies allow agents to design policies differently. Yeah. And maybe what are the pros and cons that that come with that? Because really, like, th- there's pretty, pretty drastic, like, there's pretty intense pros. Like, we can do a lot with it. But man, it can also be abused and be really problematic. Yeah. And I think it comes from the evolution of the product. So the whole idea, like I mentioned earlier, the reason we have the cash value even as a thing is because in order to make it permanent without you having to just every year have just keep paying higher premiums is to build in this cash value. Well, as soon as they built in the cash value, now this there's money sitting in your account and what's it going to do? Well, it makes sense that it should grow. Okay, well, great. How's, it's gonna, how's it going to grow? And how do we determine of the money that you put in the policy, how much goes to the cash value versus how much is going to pay for the premiums today or the, the costs toward the, like the cost of insurance today versus later? So that's where it evolved to a place where as, a, as an insurance agent, when I sit down and I build out a, a whole life policy, I'm literally telling it, this is how I want you to, to build it either on the one extreme, I want it to be really simple. Just give me the least amount of premium I have to put in for the million dollars of insurance that this person wants. Or in the other extreme, I can say the amount of insurance isn't as critical as as it is that I want to have more money landing in the cash value. Therefore, uh, and some of the companies even have these solves that are built into it. And so I can say, give me what's called a minimum non-MEC. Man, that we can unpack that a little bit, but uh, basically what goes back to what Blake was saying, there are tax advantages with a life insurance policy, but you only get those advantages if you follow the IRS's rules, right? The policy has to qualify under the, as their definition of life insurance, as the IRS has defined it. Well, that means is that as I'm putting money into it, I have to have a certain amount of insurance associated with the policy in order for it to get those tax advantages. But if I pay any more than that, if I pay for any more insurance than that, now I'm starting to eat into the cash value. So as a, as an agent, as when I'm sitting down and building the policy, structuring it, I have to know what I'm trying to accomplish or what the, what the individual who's, who's looking at the policy, what they're trying to accomplish and that gives me the answer as to what I need to do. However, it comes with a, a very large conflict of interest as, as on the part of the agent. Because if I'm the one that's educating someone on this is how life insurance works, and I'm the one building the policy, well, I could, if I didn't have my scruples right, I could mislead somebody or not give them the complete picture and maybe give them a policy that kind of does what they want, but, but also puts more money in my pocket, right? That, that possibility exists. And so when, and and this is what we like, sadly, we see so much of we see enough of this. I shouldn't say so much. We see enough of it that that's where life insurance can get a bad name. Here's the, here's the interesting thing. I think back Rod and basically what we're breaking down here is that, is that, well, to both of your points, we can design these in different ways. And if they're designed, well, we would say properly, what that means is just that there's, that it's 
focused on creating cash value for the yeah. policyholder. But if it's done that, and and if you were to go back, or this is the same thing for universal life policies back in the day. Mm-hmm. If you were to have funded it to that max funding level, like we always do, they wouldn't have there wouldn't have been problems with the original ULs, mm-hmm. right? And so what happens is is that these the because of the the ability or because an agent because we have this this um, opportunity to manipulate the way that the product is actually designed and working it has from my perspective created a huge black mark in the industry and if it was up to me if i'm being totally honest i would love it now it would it would create a a little bit of a challenge for us because we wouldn't be able to differentiate ourselves as well but if the only thing that could be sold when we're talking about permanent insurance is maximum cash value minimum cost everybody would be better off for it. Yeah. Well, and that's so part of this is an, in, part of it's an industry it is. issue. Yep. Anyway, it's, sorry, it's an industry ahead. issue. And that's where people like Dave Ramsey or our buddy, the white coat investor will basically say that, well, they, they just say that all insurance agents are crooks, right? If they're not giving you term. Yep. It's here's what happens. A bad experience comes about, mm-hmm. right? Maybe even maybe even multiple bad experiences. I think about I think about the white coat investor, and this makes sense to me, right? If you're out there and you're talking, let's say let's say that I tell a story to my hundreds of thousands, hundred thousand people who are listening, and it's and again, this story is I saw this. I had a whole life policy. I was sold it when I shouldn't have. Mm-hmm. I was only making fifty thousand dollars, and I was putting all this money into my whole life policy. I couldn't keep it, and I ended up you know, putting a bunch of money in and just losing it. Like that's a terrible, yeah. you know, that's a terrible story. And it's sad that that situation happened, but that doesn't mean we throw the baby out with the bathwater. It doesn't mean in and of itself that because of that, everything's bad, but here's what happens. If I'm that person and I go and I say, Hey, this is the experience I had. Then I go and talk about it. Guess what? People are going to email me and be like, I had that same experience. Sure. And all of a sudden my conviction grows. Right. Yeah. So I think about Dave, well, he gets hundreds, maybe thousands of emails every day and his conviction probably grows that what he's saying is absolutely right. In reality, it's it's not that the, it's the behavior that's the issue. And we, sh- and our belief is that we should take the time effort, put the time effort energy in to understand the tool. And then we can, we will teach you how to actually do the take the right steps right the right actions to make that product or that tool work for you and if you don't then you're you're just like losing out on so many opportunities so many benefits that you could have gotten had you just been willing to take the time to not take that you know that reactionary um you know that kind of emotional like that kind of reaction comes into play and suddenly we can't think clearly now we're just working off of confirmation bias i know i've been on a little bit of a rant here but from my perspective that's kind of what we see and we see it at every turn right we're we're talking about whole life and term it's every bit as intense in the iul versus whole life space okay so we've talked about whole life blake did we talk about iul yet not yet Okay, well, let's uh, let's let's get into the overview of IUL and then we're going to turn on each other. Blake, you can take the whole life side. Rod, you can take the IUL side. Sounds good. So IUL, 
what's interesting is is that it has most of the same elements as what we've already been talking about, right? It has the cash value. It can be designed in different ways, emphasizing more toward growing cash value or emphasizing more toward the death benefit side that dictates your kind of cost structure. So really where the difference comes in is as the money is sitting there and it's growing, well, what is it growing based off of? Okay, well, whole life is growing based off of a guaranteed interest rate and a dividend. And or, right? Most companies, we we always use mutual companies, which comes with a dividend. I guess I shouldn't assume that everyone, all, all the companies out there are because there are non-mutual companies out there and you're not going to get that dividend. So long story short, it's pretty simple. Yeah, you know what your guaranteed interest is. They The insurance company declares a dividend every year. So on your whole life policy, that's how your cash value is growing. In the IUL world, you have your cash value sitting there and the way it's growing is now actually linked to what's happening in the stock market. Now your money is not invested in the stock market. It stays in your account. It's not going anywhere. But what they're doing is, is they're taking the interest that they otherwise would have credited to your account. And instead they take that money and they go out and they buy options on an index. We always use the SP 500 because it's the most common index that's used. Well, although there are others, and so they buy options on that index, a, a combination of options that, that does something very specific. It makes it so that when that index is up, you participate in a portion of those gains up to a cap. Right now on the S&P 500, common cap is around maybe 9, 10%. Okay. So if the S&P goes up 19%, like it did over the last 12 months, you're not going to capture the full 19. You're actually going to capture whatever the cap was. So let's say 10%. Okay. In a year where the index is down or loses value, you don't participate in those losses because, again, you weren't invested in it. What happens is, is your options expire worthless. You just don't earn any interest in that year. Okay. Now, you still have costs that you have to pay for, et cetera. But the point is that you're, you're getting a portion of the upside from the market without having to participate in the downside. And that's how, that's how, that's what determines how your cash value grows over time. And I would say from a kind of realistic expectation in any 10 year period, plan on about seven or eight up years and maybe two or three years where again, the market was down, but you just don't earn any interest in those years. Okay. So the biggest difference you're saying is the growth mechanism, Yep. right? What else, what are the other differences? Cause I know as we get into the intricacies, mm-hmm. there's going to be some other, the one of them that comes to my mind that the whole life crowd, and this is, so Blake, this is you and me ganging up on Rod for a minute. The whole life crowd, we would say to you, Rod, one, that there are too many moving parts. Yeah. Right. Like the, that, that are not guaranteed contractually. Right. Yep. Uh, we would say that loans are, not fixed, right? They, they, they're, we can't actually get a guarantee of uh, creating arbitrage on loans, right? Like sometimes we would think, mm-hmm. we would also say that your dang illustrations that you're putting 12% out on every illustration is way overblowing what, what an IUL has any potential to do. Okay. So those are some things that I have concerns with, Rod. I'd like you to address if you yeah. would. Okay. So first of all, um, 
structurally the way whole life is built compared with any universal life. So this, this is true of index universal life. It'd be true of any variable universal life, you know, t- the traditional universal life structurally yep. it's built differently, meaning that there are, uh, there's a cost structure built into it and that can fluctuate. Now it can fluctuate on the whole life side, but much less on the whole life side than, than the wiggle room they have on, on the universal life side. So that's true. Uh, the I mentioned caps earlier, same index, same S S and P five hundred. Uh, ten twelve years ago had uh, like a fourteen percent cap. As interest rates were low, that little by little got whittled away down to as low as about eight a year eighteen months ago, and then when interest rates went up, now it's gone up again, and like I said, more around the nine to ten percent range. Okay, but what? So why? Like, how how can that happen? And maybe more a more important question is how low can the cap get, right? Contractually, they're going to tell you what that is, and it'll differ from product to product. Um, but I would say, on average, it's, it's usually right in the two to four percent range in terms of how low that cap can get. It could get as low as two to four percent. Well, would it? Okay, Rod, you man. have iced my you have iced my uh, my argument. If I can only go and get two to four percent. I'm out. Whole life is clearly, clearly the way to go. Yeah. So, um, okay. But on the flip side, you want that, that variability in the, in the cap. In other words, if you had bought your, Mm. your IUL a year and a half ago and you were at an 8% cap and you were locked there, you're never going to get higher than 8%, no matter what happens in the market and with interest rates, with anything else, that's a sad place to be because well, the fact is caps did go up. And why did they go up? Mm. I, I kind of talked about it and kind of linked it to interest rates. Well, remember earlier when I said that they go, the insurance company is taking the interest that they otherwise would have credited to you and instead they go out and buy the options with it? Well, their budget to buy options is determined by the kind of return that they're getting in their own investments. So if they are earning less like they were 18 months ago when interest rates had were low and had been low for a long time than they are today. Interest rates went up. They, they have the opportunity to invest in higher yielding bonds. Therefore, they're getting a better return. Therefore, they have a higher budget when they go back and out and buy those options. Therefore, the cap went up. So if if it were something that where it was just like, hey, willy-nilly, the insurance company is just going to decide each year what they're going to choose as the cap, then you have a problem for sure. No question. However, because it's linked to this um, interest rate slash what they're earning in their own investments, and it not only goes down, right? If it, if it only was ever going down, then again, I, I wouldn't want it. Um, but because yeah, it goes down when point. it makes sense, it goes up when it makes sense, then that that's what puts me in the camp of like, oh, yeah, I want that. Okay. That, actually, I hadn't really thought about it that way. So what you're saying is that there is variability, but it can go both ways. And right. so like it, it's almost – there's pros to being able to lock in something that I want and is good and know that it's there no matter what. But there's also like, I think you could also just, again, I'm just, let's pull back. Let's go away from even economics and just say like, there's also some real value in being able to 
make adjustments based yep. on new information uh, based on what's happening at the time, right? Okay, so that's a good argument. Um, Blake, what are some of the arguments that you would say are the most heated against using an IUL? Let's let let's let Rod have it. Okay, so th- I'm ready. I'll, okay, uh, one of the things is that a lot of you don't get a lot of the guarantees that you get in whole life. So more specifically, the cost of insurance, right? A lot of times the insurance company might have more control over what they're going to charge on the cost of insurance, especially especially as you get older versus whole life where it's all contractually guaranteed. So the premiums could change, the cost of insurance could change. I'll let you, I got another one, but I'll I'll let you start on that. Yeah. And I'm, I think the cost of insurance argument is, is one that I hear a ton and I think there's a little bit of misinformation in there. In other words, when when you said that about uh, on, on whole life, it's locked in, right? Well, it's not locked in in the sense that your cost of insurance isn't going higher as you get older. That ha- that happens it's- across the board, right? Uh, the difference is is that you were it was almost like a forced savings plan on the whole life side, where they're saying he, you have to pay this premium in order for us to play this out the way that we, that we are, you know, projecting this. Whereas on the IUL side, there's a lot more flexibility. That's a, that's a very common word that's used right on the IUL side. There's more flexibility in how much you put in. So on a year to year basis, uh, illustratively, I might say, well, if you want that insurance to last the rest of your life, you better plan on putting in X amount of premium per year, but the person's not required to, they could put in, whatever they want or if nothing at all, but the costs are still being incurred, et cetera. And so it, it is an education thing. It's something where as someone who works in the IUL world, I need to go out and make sure that anyone that, that is uh, that's looking at IUL understands that, that, that those kinds of things can exist. But, but more importantly, because of the way that we build them, and you, like you described on the whole life side, we're always building them to, toward uh, optimizing the cash value growth. We're doing the same thing on the IUL side. And it's even more important on the IUL side for the exact point you're bringing up that we have fewer guarantees. And so the, the overfunding, the extra money we're putting in there is, is all the more important on the IUL side, because not only is it getting us the benefits that we want now and kind of these living benefits, but it's also creating an additional buffer for me so that as I get older, and again, the costs are going to go up either way, right? Whole life IUL term regardless. Um, But I'm putting myself so far ahead of it that when it comes to these future days, when I'm in my seventies, eighties, nineties, and the costs are going higher, I'm paying relative to the amount I have in my cash value. I'm paying for, very small amount of insurance so that I'm not, I don't have to be concerned about what those higher costs do to my cash value. Okay. I think that's a good answer. And even just in my own experience, I think you, a lot of where I hear I'm, I'm taking the other side now, but a lot of the anti UL IUL kind of hate that I hear a lot of that was from policies that were, you know, built in the 
the let's say late 80s early 90s when that became really popular interest rates were really high and they're just projecting hey you can just pay for a couple years or 10 years 15 years and then stop funding because you're going to get you know a 12% return on going forever mm-hmm. so the way that we're designing policies today is so much different um i think than you know what what people experienced you know for the decades prior to to me getting into the business. Now, the second, so maybe hold on, Blake, I want to speak to this because I I have a story. I don't want to forget. Well, this is really, this is really Rod and I's experience. So to your point, right, you brought up where this kind of debate like became really heated, right? It was first, it was first a debate between UL and whole life. And it was like, well, whole life is kind of the dinosaur in the industry that kind of got put on the side, the back burner and started, and people started using universal life because Interest rates, to your point, interest rates were were high in those 80s and 90s. So suddenly it's like, well, I could go get, you know, seven, eight, nine percent in my whole life policy, or I could get 10, 11, 12 percent in my UL. Well, I'm going for the UL. Okay. So then what happened in addition to that is that we had agents slash companies not probably having enough foresight to realize that there's potential issues ahead. So Here's what happened. Rod and I um, take on this book of business. There was an older agent. He was uh, he was with the company that we were that we started with, and he was retiring. So he asked us to take over these these policies. We we literally experienced exactly what you're talking about. We had people's houses that we were in where where they were sold a policy based on the idea that they could pay the minimum amount of premium required in the policy mm-hmm. and keep it for indefinitely. Well, that actually worked for many, many, many years until it got to a point where it was like, oh, you can't put the minimum in now that you're 84 or or it would be something like, you know, they're 75 and they get a letter that said, okay, your policy is projected to lapse at age 84. Right. And they're like, wait, what? I've been paying 19 bucks on this a month on this policy for for 40 years. Like I it should and so what happened though was all it was like a perfect storm of good positive things happening from an economic standpoint and then just like terrible foresight from the industry anyway i wanted to get into this because like this is a this is like a road that we've had to go down in a lot of detail because of the fact that we had seen people who were burned by whether you want to call it the policy the type the industry uh, the agent, whoever it was, or maybe it was just bad luck, whatever the situation is, we literally were seeing people who were finding themselves in a really difficult position financially because they had bought the policy, one, but but most importantly, number two, they hadn't funded it in a way that would allow it to be sustainable, mostly because they weren't told to do so, Right. So what we had to do is realize, and this took a lot because my initial reaction was like, I'm out. I will, I'll sell guaranteed universal life and whole life term insurance. I want nothing to do with anything else. Well, what happened is, is we had to like really do some soul searching. And and I remember Rod, we, I think, uh, I think the turn, the turning point for me came when we were, we were meeting and talking with Dane Womwell. Mm -hmm. This was probably seven or eight years ago. And he was going through the logistics and the economics and 
um, some of like it, the, really the details inside the IUL and helping helping us understand it from a different point of view. And suddenly, like the light turns on, and I realized that the issue was never the universal life contract. In fact, I even had I even had proof of that. I remember um, policies that we went to where someone had put significantly more money. They had overfunded the yeah. policy and it was running like a champ, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Like it was just going, even at that little wimpy 4% interest rate number, right? It yep. was just plowing away. But what we were seeing is that when people were putting in minimum funding, it was just inevitable that it was going to blow up. So it was really a problem. But anyway, Dane comes along, helps us see the light. And we had to like really do some soul searching and realize okay, what's the problem here? And I feel like we identified it. The problem that I have with these debates that are happening is, it, is it's like the people, us, us debaters, right? People who are out there uh, making our case are not allowing people to be competent um, or capable of just understanding the real information. So they're like, Oh, because this happened, this is always the case. Mm-hmm. When in reality, if you just look at the information, we can find, we can learn how to extract the incredible value that exists in IUL whole life and term insurance. Woo! Sorry, that was well that said. Was, that was that. I got to give okay, a shout um, out to our to the clients and the prospective clients that we talk to because while it may seem like there is this debate online. You know, as someone who's having conversations with people who come to us, you know, daily, when you explain how things really work and like what the benefit would be, they're like, oh, that makes total sense. Right. And those are conversations that we're having all the time. So while you may not see it online, it's, you know, I'll have these conversations multiple times a day and everyone's like, okay, yeah, I see that. As long as you know how to explain it basic enough and understand here's the moving parts. Here's why you would do something. Here's why you would do something else. Almost everyone that I talk to again is like, yeah, that, that makes a lot okay, more sense. So here's the thing. Here's the thing, Blake, you have the fortunate um, position to be in where you're meeting with almost exclusively high income earners who are like very educated or even just self-education driven, right? Now, totally. this, your life would look very different if we were pushing things out to the masses and you're just seeing any person. But the reality is, is that to your point, though, I think that people, given the opportunity, can understand and extract the, extract the value if we just give them that, that opportunity to do so. So our job becomes less about saying, here's what's good or bad about them and really here's where the value proposition is and how you can use this tool to become or reach the financial goals that you're trying to reach. And it goes back to the the Dave Ramsey. My, the first thing I said about him is who, who is he talking to? He's just talking to, you know, at best middle America, people who aren't as educated, no offense, on like financial topics and could be led astray, right? In talking to people who don't know how to set up or design these policies in the most advantageous way. So I, I do agree with you. I mean, our audience are higher income earners, business owners, you know, savvy investors, and it, you know, makes and life it makes a, lot a huge easier. difference. <laughs> yeah. But, but I, I, but not only that, I like the point though. I think it does show that people are capable of using the tools the way that they're they're meant to be used and i also think it shows that 
um, there's real value in them because there's really smart, well-educated people who are seeing and understanding the value and using it to create massive wealth, right? So it's like, it's, it's kind of deeper. Uh, okay. I want to move a little bit to, I want to, I want to go back to fighting against the IULs. So we talked about maybe the lack of, uh, well, we talked about moving parts, right? And, and we could get into different, you know, different pieces. Like the reality is, is that there's moving parts. Um, and I, there's a, there's a moving parts argument that the whole life people, they, they just love that, right? Like that's it. Um, they don't, because guess what? Insurance companies are evil. They're out to get a profit, even though they like their whole life, their whole life insurance, but insurance companies are evil. They're out to get a profit. And therefore the, they are almost definitely going to look for an opportunity to screw you as the uh, policyholder. Like to me, that's just so illogical, right? Like a company can't, isn't going to last 200 years or more if their goal is to make things worse for policyholders. Like that just doesn't make logical sense. And the same thing can be played out. Like when you get to the economic side of it, it, even if I have the ability to make, to pull different levers, those, those levers, like they, while the, while one of the aspects I'm taking into consideration is the company's profitability, a big part of that is going to be sustainability, sustainability of the, of the company and of the product and competitive, the competitive nature of how they have to perform against other companies. If suddenly I do a, ter- like I just drop things out the bottom. I, let's say that I take my cap from 12 and cut it and cut it to six when every other company is at nine or 10. Well, they're just going to see the mass exodus, right? Like the economics of it just don't Okay. So I got off track again. We're going back to the concerns with IUL. Um, one of the concerns is on the income, Rod. Okay. Uh, there's an assumption. There's an assumption on illustrations. One, that we're going to get the same return every year. Now, this is an assumption regardless of what life insurance, but sure. we're, I'm specifically talking about uh, IULs because IULs is where we typically hear about the LERP conversation, mm-hmm. the life insurance retirement plan conversation. And what I mean is, is that we're going to take tax-free income from the policy that we've put a bunch of cash in. Yeah. The concern would be that one, Life doesn't exist on paper. Mm-hmm. And so that rate of return that I'm seeing, I don't know if I can rely on that. And then number two, they're acting as if, if I can just be able to take some whatever specified income for the rest of my life. And and again, agents are terrible. They never tell the truth. Therefore, people seeing this don't know any of the variables that exist within it. Yeah. How would you respond to that? Yeah. So I would say... The, the biggest thing has to do with expectations because if you're looking at an IUL illustration and your expectation is this is what's going to happen next year and the following year and every year for the next 40 years, then then you're mistaken. Okay. So, and, and it goes back to what you said. The illustration is based off of an average growth rate. How we come up with the average growth rate is could be a, another conversation in, in summary, basically what's happened is the industry kind of self-regulating uh, entity worked with the companies to come up with uh, what, what they all agreed on is 
a reasonable way to show illustrations. And basically, so when they say, well, I'm using the SP 500 and this is my cap and whatever, then there's a specific formula they plug into that says, well, if that's the case, then plug it in the formula. Therefore, you know what you should be showing as the average return each year. And, and so that's what you see. But see. Well, and so. Rod, I have to cut you off here. Then they're all showing 12%, right? They're all showing <laughs> ridiculous numbers that are just like pie in the sky numbers. And so it's really just a battle of whole life showing like, you know, five or 6%, but IUL's over there showing 12. So it's easy peasy, right? Is that what's happening? There was a point in time where that was the case, where, where the <laughs> illustration, again, I, each company was deciding how they were going to do that. That has evolved. And now we're at a place where all the companies are using the same formula to tra translate between the index they're using, which, which again is going to be loosely based on historicals and what their current cap is, therefore what they're showing in the illustration. And they cannot show any more than that. They can show less yeah. if they want, but they can't show any more than that. And can I also just say that the numbers that I'm seeing today don't look like the videos suggest. They look like the IUL numbers are showing something very, com very comparable to what Whole Life is showing. Yeah. Maybe, maybe a little, maybe a half a percent higher, yep. something like that. Yep. But like, it's pretty, re it's a pretty realistic view, I think, of what's happening. So like, to go out there and say, okay, because I love Whole Life insurance, um suddenly it's impossible for this IUL to, you know, based on the way that it's built to get half a percent more. And then I guess the other question is, well, what if it only, what if it gets half a percent less? Yeah. yeah. Does that mean that it's like evil, bad, that it's been of no value? Again, it goes back to structure, right? We talked earlier about as the structure agent, and expectations. I get to decide how I'm going to structure it. And, and I'm, I mean, we, we put it out there. We, max overfund these policies for many reasons, just building them within the strategies that we're using. We want more cash value in there. Therefore we're doing it for that reason. And then, like I said earlier, there are other reasons to do that, to, to just kind of create this, this enormous uh, growth inside of it to offset any of those future costs. So Okay, Rod, I'm really concerned that my policy is going to implode due to high costs and me taking, you know, whatever income is shown on my illustration. Talk a little bit about the concern of what some people would call phantom, because this is a big one, phantom income, mm -hmm. right? The, the potential of taking too much income out of my policy and then having the policy lapse and then I owe... Um, money to the IRS because that suddenly in that given year has become income. So yeah. just to be really clear, you don't want that to happen. We don't want to take a bunch of right. income out of a life insurance policy and then have it lapse. And because what, what they're suggesting out there could and would happen. Yeah. But let's speak to that. Yeah. So when we, when we talk about taking income in retirement, we're often asked the question, well, great. Well, so I take the income, but then does that mean I have to repay it? All this kind of thing. Well, the answer is, no, what's going to happen is, is when you die, there's this income tax-free death benefit that pays out. That death benefit pays off any outstanding loan, again, with tax-free dollars. So, so you're good, right? There's no, you're not like passing on the tax burden to your kids or anything like that, right? That's just, it takes care of it. But that presumes that that tax-free death benefit actually is there to pay out. So if the policy at some point 
lapsed, that death benefit goes away, that mechanism no longer exists. And so now the company says, okay, great. You put in, you know, whatever you put in a million bucks, the cash value is whatever, two and a half million bucks. And you took out that two and a half million of income, but you didn't pay tax along the way because you were taking it as loans. Well, now the loan has to be paid off. In other words, your uh, cash value and your loan balance got to be the same number and the company's not going to let that become upside down. So as soon as that comes the same number, they call the loan, use your cash value, this two and a half million in your cash value to pay off the outstanding loan. And now you have a taxable event. In other words, a million and a half of income that you were taking over time. Now all of that becomes taxable in that year where that happens. So, uh, so now the question is, well, and, and kind of some of these uh, anti-IUL people would say, well, that's just an inevitability waiting to happen that I'm going to take by taking income, force it into a place where now it's going to lapse, right? And here's my response to that. Be smarter than the way you take your income, right? So in other words, if I have whatever, 500,000 of, of net equity above what I've already taken, and I take 500 grand, I'm counting on some sort of growth happening in, in the account to, to keep, keep the policy from lapsing. That's an unrealistic expectation. In that scenario, I would agree that, that I'm, I'm basically forcing it into a place where it's going to lapse. So instead, if I have 500,000 of net equity in my cash value, I need to pick a number that I'm more comfortable with that if the next two, three, four years, the market isn't growing and I'm not earning interest, but I'm incurring costs and this interest that's already on the loan that I have in there, I have to be realistic about the income that we take. So now this goes back to uh, like our capital avalanche strategy, where when we're showing these future income coming out, we leave a sizable buffer and that buffer is, is directly related to how much we have outstanding on our loan because we need our cash value there, not because we're using the cash value to pay it off, but because it's, it's collateralizing the loan and making it possible so that later on my death benefit will come in and pay, pay off that loan. But we're building in a, a, a buffer, a cushion. So I don't take out too much income in, in retirement that would force it to a susceptible place where that could happen. Mm. Blake, what do you, what do you think about uh, Rod's rebuttal to some of your whole life concerns? Well, unfortunately he's just, he's just nailing it. And uh, now I feel like I'm back to where we started, which is right in the middle and thinking both could uh, <laughs> potentially have some value. Okay. Well, here's the thing. They both do have value. It just depends on how we use them. Rod, what are some of the other, what are the other debates that we oftentimes or even occasionally see against IUL? Cause I want to make sure we like really get into it. Is there anything else you guys can think of that we should be touching on? I, what about I the think surrender value? Okay. okay so the difference one. between surrender value and surrender, like, okay. Okay. So with the surrender value, let's, let's first kind of talk about why it exists. So when an insurance company is setting up a universal life policy, and again, this exists across all universal life 
subcategories. They're committing a certain amount of resources to making it do what it does. And so if someone cancels the policy in the early years, that company would be out cost. They, in other words, they're not going to recoup by uh, what they have taken in, in in cost of insurance or things like that to make up for everything that they've committed in resources and expenses. So they say, well, we're going to, we're going to recoup that by having a surrender charge. So if you have whatever, hundred thousand dollars in your cash value, but your surrender charge is 12,000 and you cancel the policy, you don't get your full hundred thousand back. You get 88, just what's left after they take the surrender charge. Right. And those surrender charges are higher in the early years, taper off. And in most policies, by year 11, the surrender charge is gone. I've seen some as long as 15 or 20 years. But I, again, I'd say most cases it's 10. Um, and so the argument is, well, that's not really all my money if I, if I just decide I want to walk away. Right. Again, the 100,000, you're telling me I have 100,000 in my account. And that's true. It is there. That's what is earning and growing each year. But if I cancel it, that's not really my money. Like I only, I only get, get the 88, 60, 70 or yeah. 80, whatever it is. Yeah. yeah. So uh, I, I think that's, that's fair. Like you should go in knowing that and understanding it. And there are companies that have riders with the, where you can eliminate that surrender charge. So if for you, you're saying, well, I like everything I'm hearing about IUL, but I hate that surrender charge. I wouldn't do it if that exists but I would do it if it didn't exist. Now oh, there are writers that we can include to, to eliminate the surrender charge. So you get, you do get a hundred percent of it if you, if you end up canceling it. But it's also about the strategy. It's about the reason you're using it. Yep. Right. So that the, we don't, we don't tell people to go in using a high surrender charge charge product. If they're wanting to use the money in a month or yeah. 60 days. Right. So typically and this is why for the investment optimizer, we typically use whole life insurance is because it, that, or that's one of the reasons, right? There's less variability mm-hmm. and, um, and we can get to that money immediately with, without surrender charges. Yep. So from that standpoint, it's really valuable. But if I told you that there's the possibility that by giving up some initial liquidity that I could potentially create some higher income in the future, you might say, okay, well, that's a, that's a, you know, th- these are pros and cons. And I'm going to determine depending on what this money is allocated for, what I want it to do, well, where it makes sense. And that's why we find so many people who are happy and comfortable using an IUL in a situation where it's a longer term play. Whereas if you're, if you're looking to run the policy or run money through your policy to invest through the investment optimizer, if that's what we're doing, we've got to use whole life, right? Yep. So yep. we're just matching the situation. Here, here's what happens. It's almost like, I think about like real estate or like any other investment. There's risk and there's reward. And it sounds like the biggest issue is that with IUL is that there's risk that we need to be aware of mm-hmm. and that there are moving parts. But I swear that real estate has those same elements to it, right? And so the irony here to me is that it's like, hey, because of the risk and the moving parts that exist here, just avoid it, stay away from it all. Don't don't become educated and learn it. Just take my word for it. It is bad, right? <laughs> but but then over here, it's like, but real estate or mutual fund or whatever their preferred yeah. investment vehicle is, like suddenly those things have risk and usually have moving parts too, right? 
But what we do is we teach how to like navigate those risks and moving parts to use them to our advantage. And I think that's like what I feel maybe more than anything as I get into these like debates, like it's philosophical because so much of it is not even about the actual products. Like I think any person who had no skin in the game, no, no part of this fight would look through those things and say like, Oh, I can see where this would be valuable and useful. Even if they learned it in, in a tremendous amount of detail. Yeah. Right. I think they could do the same thing with IUL whole life term insurance and be like, wow, these are all really great for what they're good at. Yeah. And that's exactly what my experience know. has been. Cause we'll have people who will come in and say, cause, so, cause you said, well, we, we use whole life with our investment optimizer strategy. We'll have people come in and say, well, what if I prefer IUL? I'm like, well, mm-hmm. that's great. I, I don't care. Let, let's have the conversation. Let's talk through the implications of using it and, and then decide whether whether you still feel that way, right? Let's put it out and let and them decide. The whole life crowd, Rod, would tell you that that is like malpractice, yeah. especially if you're doing anything that's connected to quote unquote infinite banking, right? Because IUL and infinite banking do not work. End of story. Okay, um, man, we've gone an hour and 20 minutes today. So we're going to call this one part one. Um, when we come back, we're going to get into the deep dive on the other direction and Blake's going to come under fire from Rod and I. You're going to have to be ready to back Can't up wait. your whole life claims. You ready for that, Blake? Come try me. I'm ready to go. Thank you for listening to the Money Insights Podcast. To learn more about the financial and business strategies discussed in this show, please visit moneyinsights.net. The views and opinions expressed on the Money Insights podcast are not intended to be individual financial, tax, or legal advice. Always consult with the appropriate advisor before making financial decisions. And if you're enjoying the show, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. This will help others find the show and learn wealth-building strategies for themselves. Thanks again for tuning in, and we'll catch you in the next episode.